that's great. that great introduction, let's, uh, let's uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 12 through 18, and uh, read along with me, and it will be up on the, uh, on the screen behind me also, too, so uh, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18, I as a preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to teach and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with it. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful just for the privilege of gathering together with your people this morning. As we look at this narratives in the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, our prayer is that we would be driven away from human wisdom, human wisdom that is that is apart from you, and we'd be driven toward godly wisdom that, that emanates from you and from the person of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you just have our have your hand on our, our time this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, I was thinking as I read that verse, if you've ever spent a lot of money on college or, or sent your kids off to college, that's kind of a depressing verse, isn't it? Could have saved a lot of money by maybe reading that ahead of time. Knowledge increases sorrow. I, I remember <coughs> years ago dropping our daughter Lauren off at college uh, up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And and we left her there with this great hope that she was going to grow in wisdom and knowledge th- through this experience, this four years of college, and and that she would come out with a with an expanded knowledge and and uh, and wisdom. And and we believe she did, by the way. I don't know she doesn't know where the story is going, so she's probably kind of worried right now. <laughs> but but can you imagine as we dropped her off and said our goodbyes, if we had added, by the way, honey, you're going to be highly vexed and grieved by the time you get out of here. You're going to learn things you wished you'd never known, things that are going to make you sorrowful when you get out of here. In fact, after four years of college, the only thing you're going to learn is that it's, there's just been a big waste of time. Now, be sure and write and let us know how you're doing, okay? So. Well, that would be very unexpected and maybe even a little shocking, wouldn't it? But that's kind of how Solomon's words feel here. I mean, the things that Mark talked about last week from the beginning of the chapter, maybe that makes sense that that it's all vanity, but but wisdom and knowledge, really? It feels like maybe the preacher has maybe gone a little bit too far this time. Well, let me remind you of the context of the preacher's mindset 
Remember, he's talking about those things that are under the sun, earthly human pursuits, a a ground-level perspective, if you will. And he actually does want to depress us, in a sense, to the point where we stop pursuing anything apart from God. He wants us to become hopeless so that we'll pursue hope in the only place that it can truly be found. So in these few verses, the preacher turns from the the monotonous, cyclical nature of creation and the toils of mankind to the intellectual, the philosophical pursuits. He recalls how he'd gone on a mission to understand the meaning of life. And this this preacher is a seeker. He's a a learner. He wants to have a full-orbed, comprehensive understanding of the universe, how it operates, and, and the meaning of our existence in it. And so he attempts to find understanding and knowledge and meaning in life through wisdom and attaining knowledge. As Mark indicated last week, we're operating on the assumption that Solomon is the preacher here. Um, There's some modern contention with this, but we're going with the historic conclusion that the author is Solomon, son of David. Now, the original word used here for preacher is koheleth, and it it means to gather or to assemble. It's, It's a gathering of a community of people, particularly around the worship of God. So Solomon here is referring to himself as a preacher or a teacher speaking wisdom to the people of God. And he's telling us what he's learned in this hopeless attempt to live life without God. It's the wisdom of an older man who's who's lived a long life and and had many experiences. He's he's gone down many paths that just lead to dead ends. And, And it could be our natural inclination in reading this to be sort of critical of the nature of this book. Instead of teaching us what to do and how to live a fruitful life, it's starting from a negative point of view. If you follow this path, it's going to lead to emptiness. We're used to how-to books, even, even Christian books. You know, how to, how, to, how to experience joy in your Christian life, how to have a better prayer life, how to raise Christian children, all, all good things. And those books, they, they, they have a tendency to start They have a a starting point that looks forward to better days if you just follow these instructions. The book of Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, starts at the other end and looks back on the futility of life lived apart from God and his principles. And so so Solomon grapples with the, the present emptiness of life. He looks back at the misguided pursuits that cumulatively over the course of his life brought him to this place of vanity, of of meaninglessness. So rather than a how-to instruction on life, this this book serves as a warning from someone who knows, from someone with great life experience, to consider redirecting the guiding principles of your life. Some of you may remember a, a social program called Scared Straight. And it involved men who had experience on the, on the darker side of life. They were former thugs and, and criminals and, and gangsters. And, and, and somehow over the course of their life, they'd, they'd, sort of, they'd reformed and they'd gotten their lives straightened out. And so, and so they'd take these men into these juvenile centers where young people were heading down the same path of, of crime and violence. And these kids, these men would tell these kids what life was going to be like for them. And in fact, they didn't really tell them. They just screamed at them. I don't know if you ever saw that, but they'd they'd get in their face and they'd yell at them. And they'd they'd let them know that if they continued down this lifestyle, um, what what was going to happen, what their life was going to end up like. Um, And and there was a, um, 
there was a shock value in their approach. And the point of the confrontation was not to demonstrate life skills or to come alongside and mentor these kids toward positive relationship building. It was to jolt them out of a mindset that was leading them down a path to emptiness and devastation and even death. Now, I'm not sure what the success rate was or if they even use that tactic anymore, but I know I, I was pretty straight, and I was scared straighter just watching it. It was, it was, it was scary. You know? <laughs> so I don't know if they're doing that anymore. But Well, that may be a bit more, than, than more dramatic than Solomon's approach here in Ecclesiastes, but it's similar in this sense. He's approaching this from the negative to jolt us out of, us, to jolt us out of our natural inclinations to pursue life experiences apart from God. And these experiences apart from God lead to nothing beyond this present life. They lead to emptiness. And those pursuits even include the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Without God, even something as virtuous as, as wisdom and knowledge end up with nothing but emptiness. His teaching is not the teaching of a theologian or a biblical scholar. His approach is the approach of an older man who's lived and understands life better by looking back on it than looking forward. And godly wisdom is often shaped by failure in misguided pursuits. A lot of the advice I, I give to my kids these days, I try not to give too much advice, but a lot of the advice comes from looking a looking back perspective. I've lived almost 60 years now, and there are things that I know now that I didn't know then. There are things about marriage that I can say, don't do that. Don't act that way. I've done it, and it doesn't work. In raising kids, there are ways of influencing behavior that are God-centered and ways that are self-serving and lead to anger and bitterness and resentment. And, I, and, and I've seen and done both. I know which one leads to emptiness because of my years of experience. In family relationships, there's a... There's a path that leads to grace and, and unity and another that leads to rivalries and, and petty disputes over the most inconsequential things. I'm the voice of experience. I've been down both paths, and I, and I can share, you know, this one is going to lead to emptiness if you go down this, this route. There are some things that come with age and experience. You have to have lived long enough to experience and understand where some paths inevitably lead. And this preacher, this man who is now old and has experienced life as few others in history have, is warning us that in the end, the outcome of our life may be very different than we thought it would, it would be. The pursuits we thought that, were, that we thought were meaningful and, and productive may in fact turn out to be just empty pursuits. The preacher is the voice of experience. And we see that as he turns his attention now to the futilities of pursuing wisdom and knowledge apart from God. And, and we sort of see this in two quests in, in his pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. The quest for meaning in life and the quest for self-improvement or, or the quest to understand right and wrong or the quest to, to get ourselves onto a moral footing, if you will. So I want to look first at this quest for meaning in life. He says in verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so he's pursuing 
is the meaning of life, the purpose of our existence. And like many of us today, we want to understand where, where, uh, where we came from. Is there any purpose to our existence? How do we determine right and wrong? What kind of life do I want to lead in order to give my meaning, uh, my, my existence meaning? The Hebrew word for wisdom here is chachma. It, it, it refers to human r- wisdom rather than divine wisdom. What humans can learn about the world apart from special revelation from God. So it's not necessarily a, a spiritual pursuit. I don't think we would look at this pursuit of Solomon as a spiritual pursuit at this time. But it sure seems like a, a worthy pursuit, doesn't it, to pursue wisdom? I mean, even wisdom can have, even human wisdom can have truth in it. And doesn't all truth ultimately come from God? I took a class um, from the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation a couple of years ago, and it was titled Theology and Secular Psychology. And in that class, in in addition to the advocates of of the biblical counseling model, we also had to read like Freud and and, and some other notable um, experts in the fields of secular psychology. Now, in reading the secular psychologists, we found that they said a lot of things that are true. And there was actual wisdom in, in much of what they had to say. And as Christians, we sometimes want to just say, well, it's just a bunch of psychobabble, right? It's all worthless. But that's not, that's not true. They, they say much that we as believers would, would agree with about the human condition. But what we found is that they could only take us so far into the human condition. Because they leave God out of the pursuit. They couldn't ultimately plumb the depths of the cause of the human condition. And therefore, they couldn't provide the ultimate cure for the human condition. Um, I've been dealing with an ongoing physical condition for the past couple of years. It's it's not terribly serious, but (laughs) I get hives. Um, For whatever reason, I get hives, you know, off and on up on my legs and my arms. and, And I've been going to an allergy specialist and We've been trying different solutions to try and uh, try and get a cure to it, but in the end, the doctor told me that it's it's rare, but some people just have chronic hives. There's no real cure for it. You you just kind of have to try and mitigate the symptoms. And so I take a, a lot of antihistamines, and I take a couple of other pills that I have no idea what they are, but um, I take them uh, regularly. <laughs> and then I use topical lotions that can kind of you know soothe the itching when they happen and. And they do provide a temporary relief from the symptoms, but they don't get rid of the problem. They soothe the itch, but they can't cure the disease. It's like that with human wisdom. It can stimulate the mind, but it can't fix the real problem. It was like that when I read Freud and the other secular psychologists. They had enough wisdom to provide a temporary relief from some of li- excuse me, from some of life's symptoms, or, or, or for, I should say from the symptoms of some of life's problems, but they could only take you so far. They can't cure the soul where the root of the problem lies, and they clearly can't take you beyond, beyond this life. So even if they could cure what ails you now in this life, it still comes to an end with only nothingness and emptiness beyond this life, because in their world, there is nothing They can't take you beyond the imperfections of this life to an eternal life completely devoid of imperfections. 
think Ecclesiastes may serve as a warning in a, in a sense to the church to be careful about pursuing wisdom apart from God, about integrating the world's philosophies with Scripture, with our theology and with our care of souls, to be careful about who influences our pursuit of the true meaning of life and who we listen to as we plumb the depths of the human soul and consider the wonders of God's grace. We don't want, we don't want our pursuits in the church to come up empty, to find out that in the end, they were meaningless, a striving after wind, as Solomon puts it. But that is what the preacher discovered in his pursuit of human wisdom. It came to a dead end. It could only take him so far and could never fulfill what he ultimately desired and needed. Like the lotion that soothes the itch of hives, it gave temporary relief, but it couldn't cure the disease. His pursuit of wisdom apart from God gave incomplete answers to eternal questions that demanded more. He called this pursuit of wisdom an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The Hebrew word used here for unhappy is actually more negative than we might think of as, as unhappiness being. It is an emotional unhappiness that describes how we might feel due to various you know, frustrations of life and circumstances. But the word used here has a much more negative connotation. It actually refers to something bad or evil. It's, it's a moral category rather than an emotional category. We might say this pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is bad business. He's saying in a sense that life and its pursuit of wisdom and knowledge only from an under-the-sun perspective, only from a human perspective, perspective, not just unhappy, it ends in an evil place, it ends in a bad place. And then in using the term business, the, the, the preacher is likely not simply talking about human activity, he's likely saying that the unhappy business is a quest to understand the meaning of life. It turns out life has many unanswerable questions. And you guys probably have already figured that out. There's a lot of questions in life that just can't be answered. And the more he searches for answers, the more questions he has and the more frustrated he becomes. Francis Schaeffer wrote about this man's, uh, wrote this about man's pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. He said, all men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning. No man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a finely meaningless machine which can and will be discarded totally and forever. Well, I think that's the conclusion that the preacher came to as he sought the meaning of life apart from God. We actually are insignificant in that case. Our lives do come up, come and go in short spaces of time, and, and they are quickly forgotten. Well, I would say his pursuit of knowledge, the preacher's pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, may have been very similar to that of modern secular humanists, naturalists who believe that only matter is real. We came into being by chance and we evolved through natural processes. We exist only for a short time, and when we die, we just go out of existence. If you think about it, life is really only memories. The, the present is here for a moment, and then it immediately slips into the past. 
into a memory. If we go out of existence and we die, then there's no memory of anything. If there's no memory of it, then it's as if it never happened. That would be the case for every human being who ever lived. Any good or bad that they've done is meaningless because when they die, it's as if it never happened. There may be a lot of good that goes on in the world that that positively impacts the living, but it all ends up out of existence with no memory. And when the big asteroid hits the earth or we succumb to the the changes in climate or, or if it's a nuclear holocaust or whatever it is that will ultimately kill off the human race, there will be no memory of any of it. It'll be as if it never existed. And that's where the pursuit of the knowledge of the universe and the meaning of life without God ultimately goes to nothingness. Richard Dawkins, the atheist and evolutionist, said that human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. I think in a sense, Richard Dawkins and and the preacher Solomon are in agreement as you read this passage. From the preacher's point of view and personal experience in trying to figure out the, the meaning of life, it was a pointless pursuit. It was an unattainable, it was as unattainable as striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? It's it's pointless. You can't attain it. You can't catch it. It's unattainable. And that's a that's a conclusion that, that many a dying man has come to. The the poet Ezra Pound said this before he died. All my life I believed I knew something, but one strange day came when I realized that I knew nothing. Yes, I knew nothing. And so words became void of meaning. Now this may sound extreme, but have you ever felt this way? I believe all of us have experienced moments like that at some level in our our lives where the world just doesn't make sense. And this next little proverb that that the preacher inserts here really, I think, expresses that feeling. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking that strike a chord with you? There are things in life that are, that are so bent out of shape that we can't make them straight. Most of, it ha- most of us have something going on in our lives at any given time that we'd like to fix, that we'd like to make right, but we just can't make it happen. No matter what we do, nothing seems to work. Maybe it's your marriage which is in trouble and, and you just can't find any answers to make it better. Maybe you have a child who's left the faith and you, you, you want them to come back, you want to make them come back, but you can't do it, you can't fix them. Maybe your relationship with your boss is failing, and no matter how hard you try, it, it just doesn't get any better. You can't make any headway in that relationship. We all have them, circumstances that seem out of control, unfixable, beyond the reach of human wisdom. What's crooked can't be made straight. And then there's those things in life that that just don't add up. How can good people lose and and bad people win in life? And why does it have to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? Questions like, why is there so much suffering in the world? 
You saw recently the horrible pictures from Syria of children being beaten. That doesn't add up to me. I don't think most people, they look at that and go, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make any sense. How can people be so cruel? And trite theological answers seem insufficient in the face of those kind of images that run across our TV screens. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking has to be cut. Well, I want to read this quote from Philip Ryken in, in hopes that it may give some insight into the answer to this kind of despair. He said this, if we take a secular perspective and try to understand the world on our terms rather than on God's terms, we'll never escape Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In the same vein, if we never see our own sin and hopelessness through the lens of the gospel, we'll never escape our own despair. There is hope for those unfixable problems. Christ, in his work on behalf of hopeless and despairing sinners, has made straight what once was crooked. He's fixed the unfixable. He's redeemed the unredeemable. He's given meaning to life where there was only emptiness and futility. When we place our faith and trust not in the world's wisdom or pursuit of the meaning of life, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we've discovered the true meaning of life. A bloody cross and a risen Savior are at the epicenter of the meaning of life because it's through Christ on behalf of lost sinners that we're reconciled and come to know the creator of life. In Christ, we know the one who created heavens. Well, in verse 17, Solomon continues his despair over the the futility of wisdom and knowledge as, as he describes his pursuit of right and wrong. He says, I plied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, when you take this statement about wisdom and madness and folly in the context of other Old Testament literature, the inference is that Solomon's pursuit of wisdom and knowledge includes a desire to understand the difference between right and wrong. So it's not madness in the sense of insanity. He's not, he's not pursuing insanity, if you will, or, or trying to figure that out. He's, he's really trying to uh, become a better person. He, he wants to find meaning in becoming a better person. He, he's on a quest for morality, if you will, a quest for self-improvement. We hear often people say things like, I try to be a good person. I, I try to do the right thing. And most people that I know are, are trying to live a generally moral life. They're trying to be good, upstanding citizens in the world. There are obvious exceptions to that, but generally that's true of the, most of the people I'm around. And I bet you that you would say the same thing, that generally people, I think, are trying to, trying to be good, do the right things and that. And, and so why would Solomon conclude that the pursuit of a moral, upright life is futile? That this was an, this, this was a, an intense search for him, too. It, I mean, he, he set his mind and his, his heart to it. And then at the end of his life, he comes to the conclusion that it was pointless. Why wouldn't he feel God's pleasure in this? Well, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the outward appearance is the under the sun perspective. 
It's the ground level view of what being good looks like. It's trying to achieve goodness apart from a righteous God and his redemptive plan. And it's a pipe dream that always does fall short of expectation. The over-the-sun perspective, the, the, the perspective with God as creator and ruler over creation, can plumb the depths of our hearts. And when the motives and intentions of hearts are exposed to God's righteousness and his redemptive purposes, then every human effort to meet an outward standard of morality and goodness is futile because it doesn't resolve the problem of the heart. God looks on the heart, and that truth does us in. This is the one that we can't escape. That's where the true, our true morality is exposed, in the heart. This is the truth that leads Solomon to his dismal conclusion. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is a striving after the wind. And his conclusion, I think, is summed up appropriately in his final submission or summation of wisdom. He says, for in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That last statement, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, um, is really true on several levels, I think. I think we can relate to that. You've, you've heard the term, ignorance is bliss. Aren't there things you wish you just didn't know, that you would have, you'd, you'd have been better off not knowing? We're in the process of selling our house, as many of you know, and, and of course, they had to do an inspection, and they found some things wrong that we just, we had no idea that were wrong. In fact, we were happier not knowing that we had those problems. <laughs> and now that we know, we have to spend money to get them fixed before we can get the house sold. There's often a, a carefree innocence to childhood, because children are typically not exposed to to the world and to evil the way that, that adults are. And, and there's a sorrow that comes with knowing the bad things that are going on in the world. If you watch the news on any given night, there's much to be sorrowful over. And, and don't you sometimes just kind of long for that childhood bliss that comes with not knowing? When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they gained a much deeper understanding of right and wrong, but it brought sorrow because it exposed their spiritual condition. When Moses brought down the law from Mount Sinai, it broadened the knowledge of everybody that heard it. It gave them a clearer picture of what true morality looks like, what God's righteous standard looks like. But it also brought despair because it, brought, it, it exposed the futility trying to achieve that standard of, of righteousness. It, it only exposed the impossibility of trying to achieve that level of righteousness. The knowledge of good and evil, the pursuit of morality apart from God is futile because it's unachievable. The preacher recognized it. He had pursued a course of self-improvement, of trying to be a better, more morally upright person. But he pursued this from an under-the-sun perspective, from a human perspective, without God. And it was futile. It was like trying to catch the wind. Well, as we conclude this morning, um, this, this discord on the folly of wisdom by the preacher really begs the question, how do we escape the futility of this pursuit 
How do we escape the vanity of attempting to find meaning in life? How do we get out of, how do we move beyond Ecclesiastes chapter 1? Well, I want to go back to Philip Ryken's quote again. He said, if we take a secular perspective and try to understand the world on our terms rather than on God's terms, we'll never escape Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In the same vein, if we never see our own sin and hopelessness through the lens of the gospel, we'll never escape our despair. The answer to the futile pursuit of human wisdom and knowledge is the pursuit of God's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. True meaning in life is, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's found in the gospel, the truth that Christ was born and paid the penalty for our sins and provided a way for us to be reconciled to God. In Christ, we've been given the wisdom of God. We're no longer held hostage to fruitless pursuits. In Christ, even the non-theological knowledge that we have becomes redeemed and part of God's common grace. Wisdom and knowledge gained under the sun, gained through human effort apart from God, makes everything meaningless. It's vanity. It's like striving after wind. Nothing has any permanent meaning. But in Christ, not only do we have the meaning of life, but he makes everything in our lives have meaning. We go from nothing has meaning to everything has meaning. He has a purpose for everything that happens in our lives. We may not know the unknowable. We may not be able to grasp the complex and often contradictory nature of the world around us. But in Christ, we know and have access to the maker of the universe. And we can trust even that even the unknowable aspects of the universe can be trusted to its creator. And if we can trust the unknowable questions of the universe to God, then we can also trust the unknowable aspects of our lives to God. In Christ, he's made the crooked, unfixable nature of our relationship to our creator straight. And doesn't that give us hope that he'll one day permanently fix what is broken and, and seemingly unfixable in our lives today? So what about the futility of self-improvement, of, of trying to improve our moral state apart from God? Why is it important to listen to the wisdom of, of this preacher who's telling us about the futility of, of wisdom? Well, I think the preacher wants us to know that futility. He wants us to experience that futility. He wants us to know the hopelessness of trying to meet an impossible standard of righteousness. Because it's only when we grasp the hopelessness of the path we're on that we begin to seek a better path. He wants us to know the hopelessness of self-effort so that we'll turn our eyes and hearts away from our self-effort and cast our hope on the only one who's met the impossible standard of God's holiness and perfection. Christ at the cross has borne our sins and paid the penalty for those sins. And he's given us 
his righteousness, his perfect moral state, so that we can stand before God justified as righteous in his eyes. The answer for the unbeliever to to the despair of Ecclesiastes 1, to to the futility of human wisdom and knowledge, is to find the true meaning of life in the person of Jesus Christ, in the wisdom of God's redemptive plan and purpose in reconciling sinful men to himself. And for those of us here today who are believers, yet often feel stuck in the despair of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the answer to find rest and hope, the answer is to find our rest and hope in the gospel, in the, in the truth that your life has been redeemed and purchased for an amazing eternal purpose. In Christ, the hopelessness and emptiness and despair described by the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is exchanged for a life of, of purpose and hope. In Christ, we move from the under the sun conclusion that everything is vanity and meaningless to the over-the-sun perspective, that because we now know and have a personal relationship with the creator of life, there's an eternal purpose and meaning to everything in our lives. We move from the godless conclusion that everything is meaningless to the God-enlightened understanding that everything in our lives now has meaning and purpose. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire this morning, to leave the, the, the wisdom of human understanding behind and, and to move to your wisdom found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're, we're so thankful that you've provided us a way through Christ for us to know the creator of the universe and uh, to understand his purpose. And you've given us in that meaning and purpose in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.